You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by John Mendez, who has been a guest on SpyCast numerous times, but never with me. So it's been a while since you've been here on SpyCast. Uh, she's a former chief of disguise in the CIA's Office of Technical Service, and was also a specialist in clandestine photography. Her 27-year career, for which she earned the CIA's Intelligence Commendation Medal, included operational disguise responsibilities in the most hostile theaters of the Cold War, from Havana to Beijing to Moscow and ultimately into the Oval Office. She's currently an author, lecturer, teacher, and consultant on intelligence matters. She's co-written several books with her late husband, Tony Mendez, including Spy Dust, A True Story of Espionage and Romance, Argo, and most recently, The Moscow Rules. So welcome, Jana, back, of course, again for, I think you're now four or five times here, so thank you for joining us here at SpyCast. Thank you. It's a great place to be. So I, Moscow Rules is an interesting book because there's lots of what could be called methods in here, kind of the, the vaunted sacrosanct sources and methods that CIA and other agencies try so hard to protect. I wonder how hard this was to get through the PRB. And mixed into that question is, Tony, your, your late husband, uh, was going through some real medical issues while this book was going through PRB. Was that part of the, the kind of the PRB's analysis of trying to get this as fast as they could back to you? Hmm. Good questions. Uh, let's go back to the beginning of the question when you're saying these are methods um, and the sacrosanct sources and methods, the things that we protect above everything else. Um, there were pieces of this book that I didn't think that they would approve. But it's one of those situations where you don't know until you ask. Uh, with all of our books, if, if we've bumped into something that they said um, shouldn't be in the public domain, we have always taken it out. Or if we could, we've written around it. That was Tony. We'd, we'd find a way to keep it in, but in such a way that it wouldn't compromise, say, a source or a method. Um, we had none of that with this book. They took out almost nothing. It's one of those situations where the things that they take out seemed almost like you could actually sit down and argue about them. They, they, they seemed insignificant to me, but they didn't seem insignificant to them, and so out they came. Almost like they wanted just something to show I, that they had done their jobs, right? We've had that once before. We had that with the, uh, with the book Argo. But, you know, this whole thing about PRB is you could spend... You could spend the podcast talking about the PRB. Let's let's don't. Yeah. <laughs> but but when your book goes in, kind of slips through the slot in that door at CIA, you can't touch it. You can't impact it. You basically cannot check on it. You can make some phone calls. The same woman always answers the phone. She sounds like um, someday I'm going to meet her. And anyway, she passes messages, but you never get messages back. So your, your book is in there banging around inside of the CIA, 
going from, from desk to area division to, you know, what happens with this last book? They kept the, uh, they kept the proposal, which was 32 pages. That took five months to get through PRP. Just the proposal to, Just that would eventually go to the... That was years ago. <laughs> it literally was. And we lost the contract for the book that time because we couldn't, then we couldn't fit into their, their time slot. So we, we kind of started over. When they got this book, it just went so slow. So I, you can't knock on the door, but I was virtually knocking on the door. And as Tony got more and more ill and we didn't hear, I did call and talk to that woman that answered the phone. And then I wrote a follow-up memo and I said, you know, he is not going to last that much longer. This is his last book, without a doubt. He's brought nothing but honor and, and, and favorable views of the CIA to the public at large. I think you, if you can do it, I think you owe it to him to speed it up. Right. I said all of that in much, much nicer terms. Well, that's pretty nice the way you just said it. But, um, and, I, think and, if there and, but, but I heard back. Oh, wow. I got a note. I got a note from a, um, a woman who said, I'm your lead reviewer, and I just want you to know I got your message. She didn't say they were going to hurry it up. I, I have no idea. Maybe it was already almost done, but they, they basically approved it right at the last minute before he died. He died the day after we heard. Uh, and then she came to the book signing here at the, at the museum. We had, what, 300 people. Mm -hmm. It was enormous. And I was signing books. And I, who, who to make it out to, who to make it out to. And she said her name, and I looked up. And she said, yeah. And she came and listened to the talk, bought the book, and had it signed. So I say there's a beating heart inside of the PRB. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if you think of anybody individually who has made the image of the CIA better over the last 20 or 30 years, it's Tony. I mean, it, it's... You know whether they're involved in certain movies, whether Zero Dark Three or others. There's always been some kind of controversy around it, but Argo was just such kind of not only was a love letter to intelligence holistically and what it can possibly do, but it just made the CIA look so good. Finally. Yeah. Right. Just once. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was George Tenet's hope when he asked Tony to tell that story. He specifically, he 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 didn't ask him. He directed him, and Tony tried to say no. Tony said, that's classified. We've never, we've never talked about that story. George said, that's okay. We're, we're, we're changing that. You can talk about it now. So go to the New York Times and, and sit down with Tim Weiner and tell the story, Tony. That's how Tony was going to go to his grave with the, mm. with the Argo story and the other stories that will never be known. Right. Well, the book, the book itself is about operating in Moscow, which is the most denied of the not denied areas. I, I'm I wonder if you could set the scene for us a little bit about how Moscow, how hard it was in the late 70s and early 80s to operate inside Moscow. I mean, you have particular tidbits in, in the book, things like there were 50,000 KGB officers in Moscow alone working against you. But what, was, what, was, what made it different than Prague or Berlin or Warsaw? What made Moscow kind of the lion's den when it came to operating? Almost, I, I would say almost it was numerical. They had such coverage on us, not just us, foreign embassies uh, across, across the spectrum, um, but America had a special place in their hearts. We were, as Milt Bearden said, we were the main enemy, and they gave us more than uh, our fair share of, of uh, difficulty. Their job was to keep us from collecting the intelligence that we wanted to bring back to our policymakers, the plans and intentions of of, of their their, their uh, bureaucracy. Our job was to collect that information. When they put up that a surveillance perimeter around our officers, that was uh, it was if you were in a car, they were behind you. There was a team of them behind you. There was more than one vehicle, and they'd be in and out, um, changing off the eye. If you were on the street, they, they would be stalking behind you, and there would be a team of them. If you were in the embassy, they were listening. They were in the walls, and they were also at, maybe at the desk next to you, the foreign national who was handling your, your shipments in and out of Helsinki, because we couldn't do that on our own. 
no matter where you were, you were being you were being surveilled. And our case officers had work to do. Uh, the the classic work of intelligence. They had um, they had to first of all collect information. You don't have intelligence until your agent goes out and finds the the information you need and then transmits it to you. So they we ended up um, meeting with our our Russian agents in Moscow impersonally. It was too dangerous to meet with them face to face. The Soviets, they would arrest them and they would execute them. And they did it over and over. We met with them impersonally with dead drops, with car tosses, with signals, with uh, encrypted communications, never face to face uh, until we got to a certain point in time where our technology allowed us to have the, the, the kind of uh, security we needed for face-to-face. -face. So a lot, it, was, the last it was a real, dance. Yeah, the last real problematic, the last face-to-face -face encounter was Pinkovsky, and that went very badly in the 1960s. And that kind of set things back a little bit, where you really had to come up with new ideas and new ways to, to communicate. Because I, I think for the, for the listeners out there to understand, like the Russian embassy here in Washington, D.C., the FBI needs to guess at who is a legitimate embassy employee and who's a spook. And usually they have, it's an educated guess, they have a pretty good idea because they don't have the manpower to follow every single person yeah. around everywhere they go, but the KGB did, right? So the poor second deputy agricultural attache at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, it didn't matter that that person was actually doing shrubberies for a job, that person was getting followed by the KGB everywhere they went just in case they were a spook. That's, that's absolutely right. It was... Um it was just a terrible place to work. We got we got um, hazardous duty pay, or I forget exactly how it was how it was worded, but we got extra pay for serving in that horrible environment, in that horrible climate, in that terrible political situation. Um, I think a lot of marriages probably underwent a real test uh, being uh, for, with an assignment to Moscow. It was it was. Um, it was, it was distinctly unpleasant. And the Moscow Rules, the name of the book, is, is basically speaking to the, the comportment of our officers as they tried to do their, their duties and collect that intelligence, how they should conduct themselves on the street, in their cars, in their apartments, how they should present themselves to the KGB to uh, improve the chances of having a successful intelligence operation. It was a little, it was a little um, tricky. Well, I, I don't normally do this, but there's a passage in here that I want to read. It's a short one, but it really kind of encapsulates what you're talking about here. Uh, if you're reading along at home, it's on page 20. <laughs> and, and, and this is, you know, the Moscow rules are actually literally a set of rules, but kind of this brings it all together where it says, developed over time, the Moscow rules became a set of behaviors used to manipulate hostile surveillance with the goal of making them think that you were doing something you were not, that you were there when you were absent, and that if they could not locate you, they had lost you, not that you had escaped. The fault, of course, was theirs. Then, when they were almost ready to report their mistake, we would arrange for them to find you. You would magically appear, and the surveillance team would breathe a sigh of relief. There's no limit to a human being's ability to rationalize the truth. This, incidentally, became one of the most important rules. So it's, it's, it's not just playing hide-and-seek. It's really getting into the minds of the surveillance team and actually forcing them to think that they just did something wrong, that there's really not anything nefarious going on, that it's, everything is business as usual when you're doing one thing and the other. And we'll talk about magic a little bit later on, but this is kind of a key element of kind of look over here at the little birdie while I'm sliding around you on the other side. Tony used to characterize it as robbing the bank. If you could go in and rob the bank and do it in just the right way and they did not know, then you could do it again and again and again. That was one of his side goals. It's not a rule, but that's the idea, this idea of, of deception, illusion, and, and fooling them into thinking that we were doing something that we weren't, or that we weren't doing something that we were. It was a mind game. Because if you, it's one thing if you can pull off an operation once and it's successful, but if it's so brazen, 
you can never do it again. They basically have burned your capabilities. If you're doing it so underhandedly, and I don't mean that with any kind of connotation, I mean that in all, actually all the best ways, that they have no idea it's happening, then you can go to that well over and over again. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so a lot of the pieces of, of uh, our tradecraft developed out of that exact mindset, the, the, the idea of a brush pass, for instance, done successfully, it was invisible, and you could do it again and again and again. Um, putting down signals, putting up signals. There were, there were very precise ways to do this under surveillance where they wouldn't realize what you had just done. And, and success would allow you to repeat it and repeat it. And in, in the end, I mean, some of the operations that we ran in Moscow, even with this, this suffocating embrace of the KGB, these operations were incredible, and they were incredibly um, important to the United States government. Well, it almost seems from reading this that I didn't need to bring in a new generation of people to kind of think differently. And, and we'll talk about some particular personalities, but in a broader sense, new generations of officers, new technologies, new techniques, new training kind of needed to be brought together. Because the old way of doing things, the people who had lost Penkovsky, the kind of people who'd grown up with, you know, from the OSS to the CIA, that generation was getting very old and or were kind of locked into the old ways of doing things. I was, I was in the building, um, I was at Langley, at the headquarters building at Langley, not so long ago, a couple of months ago, and the, the DDS&T, who was a woman, uh, was presenting a, a certificate and some medals posthumously to Tony. She was talking about that. She was talking, actually, in terms that were hard for me to understand, about the technologies that are going to take us forward that are going to uh, allow us to operate even in this data-driven, cipher-centric uh, uh, generation that mm. we're in the middle of, even with all the screens and with all of the, the, the social media, we still have to be able to do our job. So she was talking about facial identification, for instance. Well, when, when we left, that was in its infancy. And I've since then seen some, some demonstrations of how good it is. That's a problem. Uh, the idea that, that presenting a false passport as you cross the border or register in a hotel, that that really isn't going to do the trick anymore. Mm. So this new generation has to be grappling with that and, and coming up with solutions. I believe they will. We always have come up with solutions. Right. Well, and that's essentially what intelligence is. It's problem solving. That's right. You know, from the top all the way down, it's, it's been given, and usually intelligence agencies are given incredibly difficult problems, because if they were easy, the politicians would have figured them out or the State Department. And in this case, your, your problem uh, when you join OTS, which will, you know, kind of shift to that, was to allow people to meet up with their assets in places where they had blanketed surveillance. So let's talk a little bit about the Office of Technical Service. Everyone compares it. I mean, Bob Wallace, who's a friend of both of ours, they, they call him, he's like, he's like Q. He's like Q from James Bond movies. But there's a dramatic difference between what you see in the Bond movies as Q as these Oxford-educated, you know, John Cleese or, or Llewellyn or even the new Ben Whiteslaw. Yeah. You guys were in the field. You weren't, you weren't this, you know, this speckled Oxford you know, professor types you know, Tony in the, you know, basically describes it as like miscreants. It's essentially, you know, not suave, real life, you know, people robbing banks if they weren't actually working for CIA. People who went to state universities and kind of looking to break down doors versus kind of bonding their way into places. You know, there was a, there was a division uh, inside of CIA because that James Bond group, the Ivy League, the Harvard graduates, the, the ones that came from money, that a lot of them came from the East Coast, that stereotype actually did exist at one point at the at the at the uh, at the birth of CIA. It was those people were drawn in initially, and, and and they were the ones who set the the model. But this technical office wasn't born quite then. We were born a little later, and we were we were made out of a different cut of cloth. We were indeed we were we were. Um, we were physicists and chemists, uh, forensic experts. We were uh, 
printmakers, um, we were people that had such narrow specialties that you can't really even describe exactly what they did. One man did hot air balloons. One woman did nothing but ink. One of our most genius guys did batteries, really for his career. Went shooting out of the CIA higher and higher, ended up working on the Hubble telescope and rescuing it. Mm -hmm. um, these people, we just used to look at each other and say, it, we're so happy that they're working for us. Right. These are our geniuses. And, and, and along with that genius comes all kinds of, um, uh, what can I say? Not wacky behavior, but there you go. There's a price you pay for being that smart. <laughs> and a lot of times it comes out in social settings and, and all. Uh, some of our people, we did not allow to go visit contractors. They were, they were genius, and they, they didn't have the social niceties in a large conference room making a presentation to, um, to be humble. So we kept them at home. <laughs> well, what's interesting, you know, certainly with the movies on show, is some of the most difficult work happens way after the espionage is done. And something even as simple as developing film, mm. you know, which you spent a lot of time doing. It's just the way it's described, you could burn or destroy months worth of espionage work if you weren't precise and perfect and you're using night vision goggles, you don't know which way the, the film is tiny because it's from a some miniature camera. That's, you don't think about that, right? You think about the, the spy jumping out of the airplane and stealing the information, but the information could be completely compromised if someone's not good at their jobs back at headquarters. You know, the, the, the film you're talking about, we had these cameras that, that we could put, just say we could put it in a, in a fountain pen. Uh, and inside the fountain pen was not just a camera, but was a film cassette. And the film was like, it was, it was, uh, it was like saran wrap because we'd taken the, the backing off of it. It was just the emulsion. If you dropped it, you would never find it. Um, print, that film was so precious that a lot of the times when we picked it up from our agent in Moscow, we had a courier in the embassy waiting for that piece of film to fly it back to the States. It was so precious that only one or two people could develop it. And, and, and then you had, the, it looked like polka dots on film. Then you had to print it, eight and a half by 11. The whole thing was, it was just hopelessly tedious and really scary because it was easy to screw it up. But the result was very often gold. We didn't give that camera to people who didn't have access to the top tier of information we wanted. Right, and someone who had just risked their lives giving you that information and That's you right. want to mess it up on the other end. That's right. So let me ask you about some personalities that pop up in this book that I think a lot of people may have heard of. How much did your career overlap with, with James Angleton? Fortunately, not much, I don't think. It did not. Yeah. <clears throat> Angleton, to me, is a story. But it was so fresh when I got there that, you know, you just kept hearing it and hearing it. I, I saw in our museum um, the other day, I had a moment where I was waiting. I saw his hat. Uh, I didn't know that that was there. James Angleton was, um, everyone said he was brilliant. I'm, I'm sure at one point he was, but he seemed to sink into this paranoia into this um, other world of intelligence, spies versus spies, where he almost shut down the CIA, oh, SE division, Soviet East European division at the time, because he didn't believe any of the assets that we were running were real, and he didn't believe any of the people that approached us with, with intelligence were bona fide agents. He dismissed everyone. We dismissed all kinds of important intelligence. I mean, we were not running operations for a period of time because of him. So he thought everyone was a dangle. He thought everyone he thought was every being sent to us by the Soviets. He did indeed. He did indeed. And um, you, can't, you can't run an intelligence operation that way. You don't, you, then you're not collecting intelligence. So eventually he got, he got retired. Never used it that way as an active verb, but he got retired. He, he was asked to... Uh, to leave. How important was David Blee to bringing the SE division back to prominence, or at least getting a, bringing a new set of eyes and a new set of perspectives on how that should be run? The people that were there with Blee 
um, thought the world of him, and he had a tough he had a tough job. He did have to bring it back. He also had to entertain some ideas of how to do intelligence that that we hadn't used before. We were starting to come up with new techniques, new tradecraft. In my office, that meant equipment very much, um, things that were tactile, things you could touch. In in the director of operations, it meant new ways of of working on the street. Of of working in the gap, it was Haviland Smith mm-hmm. in the in the um, in the East Block who began playing with that idea of a gap being. You knew you had surveillance in a car, but you also knew that if you made a right turn and then the next right turn, at the end of those two rights, you'd probably have maybe eight seconds before your surveillance car would come around the corner. The question was, that's a gap. And the question was, what could you do in those eight seconds? Could you do an operational act in those eight seconds? Could you put up a signal? Could you do a car toss? Could you, um, you know... Put someone out of the car. You could roll somebody out of the car if you needed to. Well, you may need a little more than eight yeah. seconds, but if you got up to 12 seconds, yeah. you could you could probably do that. And give us just a little bit longer, and we could, um, we could, we could replace you in that car. Well, what's interesting to me is is if, uh, someone we, we both know very well, Burton Gerber, and how much of an impact he had in essentially undoing what Angleton had done before by going back. And, and you know, Burton Gerber's an operator, right? He's somebody who is not someone you would think of as sitting down with just files surrounding him and going through. But he spent a lot of time just going back over all the people who tried to volunteer to give us information and undoing a lot of what Angleton had done before him. Not, not, enough, not in enough time to fix it, but at least to allow us to move forward and do some good in the future. And what he did ended up being called the, the Gerber Rules. And, you know, you're right. He was, he was an operator, and, and sitting behind that desk probably didn't come that naturally to him. But he was also a problem solver, and they really had a big problem. So what Burton did was he looked at all the old cases and, and tried to make a graph of who, who were all these, quote, dangles that, that, that Angleton wouldn't accept and, and what, were their, what were their bona fides. And they came up with a, um, a finding that the KGB would never allow one of their own officers to, to approach us, even as a dangle, because they never trusted any of their officers who actually knew in, you know, some of their secrets. They would never let them step forward as dangles yet some of these people who had stepped forward fit that mold. And those were probably almost assuredly true attempts at defection or, or uh, working for us that, that we turned away and we didn't respond to them. So, so Burton was a bit of a hero. Uh, he, he took that information, he presented it to the, the Directorate of Operations, and they started, they started moving forward. They started getting back to work. We mentioned Haviland and Smith uh, about you know the idea of working in the gap. The also the concept that really extended to Moscow was all the idea of being boring all the time, of kind of lulling the surveillance into a false sense of security. You know, you look at people um, again. Think pop culture, where you you hit the ground and then you do your operation and then you're gone. No, you lull them. You want them doing nothing of just at least looking like you're doing nothing and getting them to know your routine and almost to the where. They know where you're going before you kind of make that turn. Yeah, like, oh, it's yeah. Tuesday. It's Tuesday, and it's afternoon. And he usually, on Tuesdays, he usually goes over, I don't know, to some gym. To, he has a, a routine. And they know where they think he's going, and that allows them to relax. And if your surveillance is in a car and they relax, they give you a little more room. They don't have to stay right up with you because they know where you're going to end up. And it's you, you're trying to build in. That's part of building in that gap. If they're back 20 feet, if they're back 40 feet, then when you do your two right turns, that space becomes longer, and your options increase on what you can do. It was it was it was really uh, goes back to mind games. Right. Let me ask you about the pipeliners because this is really kind of this generational shift at CIA, where for the very first time you're bringing in people whose sole purpose is, at least in the beginning of their careers, is to work in Moscow. So they're clean. It's not like they've been spotted somewhere in Prague or Bogota. Not like there's a possibility the KGB would know who they were. But there's a bit of a double-edged sword here. You have people who are clean, 
but also people that don't really know what the hell they're doing. That's they're right. right off the street, and you're That's training them to go to Moscow. That's right. It's like winning the Heisman Trophy before you uh, before you've actually taken taken the field. Um, the case officers wanted to work. I mean, this is this is where the promotions were. These are, this is where the recruitments. This is where the intelligence, the the history changing intelligence was. They wanted to be chosen to go to Moscow, but then they they hadn't been anywhere else. Um, it was a double edged sword. You know, the other the other piece of it that that we get into in the book is is. Um, the kind of people we were hiring, you know, and there was a there was a profile of what we were looking for back then. It was pretty much male. That's changed, but let's just keep it in the masculine gender. He had to be um, he had to be a people person. He had to be someone that that he had to have charisma. This officer we were looking for. He had to be someone you'd meet him, you'd have a drink with him, and you would start feeling like you were his best friend. I mean, you would like to work with him if if you knew him. This kind of guy, it's kind of a type A personality, just a little larger than life. We, we went out looking for those guys. We couldn't teach them that. They had to come with right. that. There we, are things we, you could teach and things you couldn't. We could teach them all the rest, but we needed that personality. And then once we got them, we had to sit them down and say, now listen, if you really you know, have this amazing operation or these moments when you almost saved the world, you have to know up front that you can never talk about what you do at work. You can never brag about it. You can never like, oh, look at me. Um, it's an issue, and it became an issue, and it eliminated a number of people who would have made great case officers, but they would never have been able to keep the secrets. Right. So we're, we're, we're asking them to do one thing, and on the other hand, we're asking them to, to absolutely shut up and never, ever discuss it. It was tricky. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. What's extraordinary is they went through the internal operations course, the IOC, which the equivalent, I think, would be special forces training because the people who are teaching them from the Milt Bearden's to the Jack Platt's, these are legends. Yes. This would be like if your, your first freshman year class at West Point was taught by George Patton and Omar Bradley, right? I mean, it's, these are Platt himself. I mean, there are codenames in CIA and, and everyone's is different. His was Cowboy which gives you a little bit of an idea of the one guy that the CIA gives cowboy code name to is your professor at the IOC. This is a crash course in doing overseas operations. Yes, it was. And it was, it was kind of worst-case scenario all wrapped up into six weeks of absolute hell. You took it with your spouse, if you had a spouse. Most people did. So it was husband-wife teams because in Moscow... Our wives were willing participants in some pieces of an operation. They might drive, they so might sketch. Let me interrupt. We're sorry. These are spouses that aren't in CIA. That's right. Okay. I just want to make sure people understand that your spouse might be not, you know, working down the street, not at CIA, right? You're bringing in people who weren't part of the agency. Um, sometimes the women were more more active than the men. Sometimes the spouses actually did a better job at things like driving or than their husbands, and we would just sit and watch, try not to be judgmental. <laughs> but I don't think anyone who went through that course ever forgot Jack Platt's name or his face. He put the fear of God into you, as he should have, because you were going to have some people's lives in your hands. Um, I know that back here in Washington, they pulled in some, they did some fake arrests, and some fake interrogations of these people that were in training in D.C. They were arrested on suspicion of drugs or something just to test them, just to see how they would respond to harsh situations. 
would they break? Would they tell the secret? The secret being, oh, I'm a CIA officer in a training course. Would they divulge that? That was a tough test. And then a lot of them went through a finishing course, which was put on by your husband, Tony, the, as part of the special surveillance team, where he and his, his crew, essentially it was informal, but it turned into something much more formal than that later on, testing people before they went to Moscow, here in Washington and around the area. We, we gave them, we, we told them it was their final, their final exam after the IOC, before they got on the plane, typically right before they got on the plane. Our goal was to take these young people who had successfully navigated that course, come at the other end, got certified, ready to go, and then scare them to death. So we had, um, Tony and I did this together. It was his team, but I was very much um, on the street with him. We would take the couple, remember it's a couple, and we would walk them through a prearranged scenario. And the goal was... Can you see surveillance? We're going to try and have people watching you all night and reporting back to us. So we want to know, can you spot surveillance? That really was the only goal. So we'd end up in a bar. We always ended up in a bar. And we'd say, what did you see? And they'd say, well, you know, there was a couple over by the Mayflower Hotel. We We thought we had seen them before. This is where that once is an accident, right? twice a coincidence, three times is an act of war. Thought we saw them twice. Uh, and then there was another guy that looked vaguely familiar to me. And while we're talking, the doors to this bar would start flying open. And our 40-member our team would come in. And they'd push tables together like people do and order pitchers of beer. And we'd talk. And um, maybe the next day, maybe the next week, that couple would get on an airplane. But they knew that if they had surveillance and they put down a dead drop for their agent. They knew that the KGB would sit there through snowstorms, through rainstorms. They would sit there until someone came to pick that thing up and they would arrest them. And if they could, they would execute them for espionage. It was that important. Well, I think that, you know, you mentioned a lot of these different couples. This would be a wake-up call because the vast majority of them aren't spotting all of your surveillance. Right, when uh, these people are coming yeah. into the bars, they're like, oh, shit, I didn't see you, I didn't the see woman you, with the, the woman you. with the baby and the pram and the, the gal on the bike with the messenger helmet and the bag and the one washing windows when we were going by that, that restaurant and all these people were surveillance. I mean, just like the Soviets owned Moscow, our team owned Washington. We could, we could, have, we could be a UPS guy with a box. We could be anything we wanted to be just like they could be anything they wanted to be. It's scary. Well, one of the potential solutions to getting people into Moscow as the pipeliners, one who actually didn't go with a husband, was Marty Peterson. Hmm. Um, and Marty Peterson has a lot of firsts. He's the first female case officer in Moscow. Um, she was first to be sent in the black, which is kind of an interesting concept to where uh, no one had any idea who she was. She, she wasn't somebody that had been anywhere else. Um, and she was there to reestablish face-to-face communications in some cases, but even in, you know with Trigon, who was a very important person, um, but even didn't get that far because disaster struck with Marty. Not with her, but with Trigon. You know, um, the idea of Marty was born out of the fact that the KGB never used women, and so we assumed that they would assume that we never used women, and so when Marty Peterson came along, she was born for this moment. And let me say at the beginning that that Marty came out of this a hero at the CIA, and she is today. Not just among the women, either. I mean, women loved her because she was was our Ruth Bader Ginsburg inside of the agency. But the men uh, across the board, she has has a lot of people who think a lot of her. Marty came in and did a very hard thing because um, in that community in Moscow, in the expat community, just say in, in the American embassy, she was not allowed to speak, to socialize, to in any way interact with anybody at the CIA station, which means that she was the odd man out entirely. She wasn't actually State Department. They all kind of knew each other. She wasn't CIA. She, she, she had to find her way socially. Um, she had to do her work at the embassy. And then her real job, her real reason for being there, 
would take place after normal hours, after she had put in a good eight-hour day, where she'd put on her boots and her, sometimes her skis, her big overcoat, her shapka, her, her, her Russian fur hat, and go out into these snow drifts, put down packages for an agent named Trigon, pick up packages from an agent named Trigon. She was so trained in surveillance detection, um, but it turned out that she determined that she absolutely didn't have any because she didn't fit the paradigm that the KGB was looking for. They were not looking for a woman. So she had to actually set up her own operation where she had two CIA guys in, in a store called the Berryoska, and they're up on the second floor looking out at the street, and Marty goes by in her car, and the two CIA station officers are looking, and they said, she's right, she doesn't have any surveillance. It was a, I mean, she could have gotten an Oscar or an Emmy for this. <laughs> well, that's something where we haven't talked about yet is, is it's not just surveillance from the KGB that's problematic. What made Marty's job impossible was the fact that they didn't need to surveil her because they had been given information about where the, the actual dead drop was going to be from the other side, from someone who passed it along. So it wasn't her mistake that gets Trigon eventually caught and her kicked out of the country. That's right. It was a, a, a variable that she had no control over whatsoever. That's absolutely right. Um, she was wearing a receiver and, and some earphones um, um, the night that all of this happened, the last time she went to put down a drop for him. And she should have been, would have been able to electronically hear if she had KGB behind her, because by that time we had learned their frequencies, and you didn't hear words, but you hear you would hear crackles and pops. If you turned right, you'd hear some crackles and pops. You'd, you'd know you you could correlate them to your. She heard no crackles and pops, so she went up to this bridge, walked halfway out, across the Moscow River, in the middle of the night, took a piece of coal out of her bag, pushed it up in a cubby hole in, in just a little natural alcove in the bridge and then she was apprehended but it turned out that they were not following her she was correct she was not being followed they were in front of her they were waiting for her they didn't know who they were waiting for but they knew that someone was putting a drop down for trigon that night and they were they were there to arrest that person and when they discovered that it was marty and that it was a woman they were stunned how did they know? They knew because they had already uh, arrested Trigon. They had caught him. Uh, like you said, he was betrayed by someone else. They had caught him. They had him. They had all of his equipment. They had his one-time pads. They had his enciphered messages. They had everything, we, his little tiny cameras, everything we had ever given him. But he had a pen. Actually, he had two pens. One of his pens had a camera in it so that he could clandestinely take photographs. And the other pen, which looked just like it, had a cyanide capsule in it. It was called an L-pill. And so when they arrested him and he knew it was over and he knew he had no nowhere to go, he said, I will write my um, confession for you, but I want to write it with my pen. It was one of those kind of status pens, really expensive Western pen. That, uh, that we gave him. So they gave him the pen, and he bit down on the hollowed-out uh, cap, which is paper-thin, and there was a glass capsule inside. He broke it. Uh, he bit down on it, and they said he was dead just about the moment he hit the floor. And which leads to our last Moscow rule, which is never fall in love with your agent. It has nothing to do with Marty Peterson. It has to do with don't ever get personally caught up in their situation. Don't let it get personal. It's like a doctor and a patient. It will, it, will, it will blur your vision. But a lot of people that worked with Trigon, it got personal. Jack Downing, who, who was the, he was the deputy chief of station then. Tony Mendez, who had helped with some of the equipment. Certainly Marty Peterson, who had never actually seen him face to face but worried about him probably more than anybody else uh, in the world. That's, that's going to be the, one of the most hardest things to do because your job is to protect this person. 
Your job is to make sure that this person is taken care of, that you don't, you go through extraordinary lengths to make sure that this person is not going to be arrested and, and identified. And their safety is a primary concern. Now, the number one concern is getting the information, of course. That's your job. But you have to walk that fine edge between people who are kind of doing this to help your country. Yeah. Uh, and especially in this case where I can understand being a handler of someone who's doing it for money and not getting all that emotionally involved in someone who's just kind of a scumbag and just wants money, you know, money from you. All kinds of people. A lot of people on our side, right, who are giving, you know, giving away secrets for money. But the people like Trigon, people like later on Adolf Tolkachev, who are true believers, who just want the best thing for their family, who want revenge against, in this case, the Russians who killed uh, his in-laws. Uh, it's hard not to identify with those people because they are they're stand-up guys, right? They're people who you yeah. kind of uh, admire. Ab- absolutely. Um, I-, I think I think when when we lost Trigon, everyone just kind of took a couple of step backs, steps back, trying to figure out what we what we could do to prevent something like that from from happening again. But it is built in. If you're running operations in Moscow, they will eventually catch them. When we would recruit someone, we didn't recruit in Moscow. It was too dangerous. We would recruit people overseas, and Trigon was recruited in Bogota, where he was assigned. Um, when we recruit them, we make certain commitments to them. This is kind of upfront. They don't sign a contract, but they might sign something. But we assure them that if we, if they feel a net closing around them, or if we see it from afar, if, if either side believes that it's getting dangerous, we'll get them out. We will exfiltrate them. We always make that offer. <clears throat> a number of times we're turned down. They say, no, I, I, especially Russians, no, I, they could never leave the motherland. They just couldn't. But it was always an option. It was always out there. Um, Trigon would rather commit suicide than try and escape because he kind of felt that starting to happen. He had told his case officer in messages, in written messages, that he could, that he was worried, but he never tried to run. Well, it's like Tokachev, clearly we let him know that there might be an issue. Uh, and he said, no, I'm not going to run. I'm going to stay. And, you know, that was, there's never a lack of attempting to get somebody out. You know, yeah. you, got, you need their cooperation also. I'm, re- I'm, so. I'm reminding of Fedora, another case, uh, Gus Hathaway, the chief of station at the time, left the, the American embassy to go and tell Fedora that a a book was being published in the United States that could very easily reveal Fedora's identity uh, and that if if the Soviets figured that out, they would probably arrest him and shoot him. So the chief of station who had recruited him couldn't get out of the embassy because of surveillance, and so he used one of Tony's on-the-shelf disguises that he left behind. He basically dressed as a woman, even with ice skates. It was, it was people that knew Hathaway just will probably never get over this mental picture of him uh, in this outfit. But he went to Fedora's house, knocked on the door and said, if you want to come with me, I'm telling you that we can't stop this book. It is already printed. Fedora said probably some imprintable things in Russia and saying, I'm not, I'm not leaving. This is my country. I'm not going anywhere. But that, that, was, uh, that, that would give you a sense, though. We really meant it when we said, if it's getting dangerous, we will get you out. Of course, they had to accept the offer. Right. We, we wonderfully segued into what I want to talk about next, which is, was your neck of the woods, and that's disguise. Mm. Talk about the disguise branch, because, again, popular culture, this is everywhere, right? With Mission Impossible ripping off the masks and changing voices and everything else. And... It, it, Really, disguise at CIA was not thought of all that highly until decades after CIA was formed, like into the 1970s, really when Tony kind of gets in there and then when you follow in his footsteps. But so many important techniques were developed or or technologies by disguise branch that were used in Moscow, from ID transfer to bringing masks in from the jib, which we'll talk about, to bringing in Hollywood and magic. So let's start with ideas of ID transfers. That, that seems kind of the basic. The basic idea is making one person look like someone else. 
And there's so many wonderful stories in here about, you know, someone being told to kind of overdo their dress and kind of get the Russians used to them being over the top, to use that effectively as an ID transfer. And again, you're playing, you're playing with their mindset. You're, play, you're playing games with people's um, stereotyping, people's inclination to stereotype. So it starts out, this, this disguise thing, in 1973 when Tony took it over, it was not well thought of. But I have to say, in his defense, because he's not here to defend himself, Back then, we were disguising mostly men, and mostly men do not want to wear wigs, glued-on mustaches, you know, phony eyeglasses, fake teeth, uh, blah, blah, blah. They just, nobody thought they needed it. So it wasn't uh, flourishing. But in Moscow, where it was worst-case scenario, of all the places in the world that we worked, this was the worst place, the hardest place. We put our minds to it. Well, no, Tony put his mind to it initially and came up with a series of ideas with help from DO case officers, from Directorate of Operations case officers. So the ID transfer kind of was invented by Jack Downing, who was the deputy chief of station. We had a walk-in. Uh, maybe he was Korean. He wanted to defect. There was, a, there was a, a program for this. You always send them back, send them back out on the street said, we'll meet you somewhere else. We'll meet you and talk to you somewhere else. So we did that. And then Jack had to figure out how to get out of the American embassy without being, without being surveilled, without picking up surveillance. Well, he knew of one guy in the embassy who did not have surveillance. It was one of our officers, our OTS officers. He was a tech. He did all the work in the embassy. He didn't go out much. But when he had come to Moscow, Tony had asked him to look a little unusual. So he wore, for the duration of his tour, cowboy boots, uh, a great big belt buckle, uh, kind of Western clothes, which was very novel in Moscow. I mean, they liked it. They thought that was cool. We called him the rhinestone cowboy. He had longish hair, and he had a mustache. So when Jack Downing wanted to go out and meet with this person, all he had to do was the belt buckle. You don't have to do all of it. You just do some of it, and the viewer will assume the rest. So maybe a, maybe a wig, maybe a belt buckle, and then squeeze into those boots. Those were not his boots, but he did that. Went out and successfully met with this, this walk-in, this person that wanted to uh, talk to us. And then he sent Tony a note, and he said, I think this is a really cool idea. Why don't you come out, and we'll talk about it. And that was the beginning of ID transfer, which, which was you had a donor and a recipient. Uh, the donor was the person who didn't have surveillance. The recipient was our case officer who needed to get free. Uh, so we started setting it up before people even were assigned to Moscow. They would come to our disguise labs, and we would, because we saw everyone, we'd say, oh, you and so-and-so over here, you guys are the same size, pretty much. We started pairing them up. So that was a capability that we built that was very flexible, that we didn't have before, and it was very effective. Well, you, you would assume that everyone kind of needed to look like everybody else, but you disguised Michael Sellers with someone that had no real similarities to him. Can you tell that story? This is fun, because I, I talk to Michael Sellers now. Um, we're on Facebook, and we're chatting back and forth, and, and I go back to that operation, and it was remarkable. Um, Michael was about six foot three, slim, young, Caucasian. And he was a very good Russian speaker. He was probably as fluent as anybody got. He could curse like a Russian. So he was, he was well equipped with the language. And he was a very um, capable operations officer, but he couldn't get away from surveillance. Then there was, um, now I have to, I don't, I don't want to, put my finger on who this guy was. There was a, a, another man in the embassy that had nothing to do with CIA. He was a six foot three also, slim, young, but he was African American. And so what we did for Michael was we did an ID transfer and we, we transferred the one identity onto the other. So Michael is now a six foot three African American man 
who the KGB is not concerned about, and to clinch the deal, he drove the other man's car. So he's going through the gate out of the embassy. They did this more than once, and nobody even blinked. But it took a certain amount of coordination because, remember, the embassy is bugged like crazy, and all the apartments of people who live in the embassy, a number of people, both of these officers, there are bugs in the walls. So if the African-American man was out driving his car on the streets of Moscow, the real African-American man had to be somewhere out of sight, sitting silently until Michael Sellers came back. So there's, there's choreography with all of that. And that opened up some interesting possibilities using that technique. That was a good technique, very flexible. Let me, let me ask you about disguise on the run, because it's something that there's a wonderful anecdote here about Tony demonstrating that, um, where essentially it was within a hallway, walking down the hallway, was able to completely transform himself. And I won't say what into, I'll let you tell that part of the story. But as that was as a demonstration for the higher-ups to show that this could be done very effectively. We just demonstrated this actually on uh, one of those wired.com um, what do you call it? Video clips? Yeah. Anyway, uh, Tony's son, our son, is showing a small version of this. But what, what um, we had a particular operation in Moscow, and we had to get one of our officers across the city, through a forest, out to a, a street, if you think of the beltway that goes around Washington, D.C., a street like that, there were some manholes, and our officer had to drop into a manhole without being seen or identified. So, uh, again, this was some of that sleight of hand. Um, Tony came up with a concept that he called Disguise on the Run, which was how you can use a crowd to facilitate uh, a disguise change. And in order to demonstrate it, it's called a proof of concept, we set up a, um, a scenario in a, a long hallway at our offices. It was, it was a big, long building, and the top floor was empty. So we set the office director in a chair. It was kind of dimly lit. I sat next to him. The office director was a narcoleptic, so part of my job was to keep him awake, <laughs> and I did keep him awake. And Tony's at the far end of the hall, and he's standing there in a raincoat with a, with a briefcase, wearing a suit, just looking straight ahead. That was it. So he waits, and the second hand sweeps past 12. He had 40, 45 seconds to make this change, and here is what he did. It sounds so silly when I tell it. He starts walking forward about one step a second. He's got 45 steps till he gets to the office director, and he did these things. He peeled off his overcoat. I, he didn't take it off. He peeled it off. He held the the ends of the arms, and he turned it inside out when he removed it, and then he put it back on because now it was a pink woman's coat with a big shawl around attached. He, um, he pulled up one pants leg and it caught on some Velcro, other pant leg caught on some Velcro because he's wearing black women's stockings. He lifts up a foot, uh, because he has a, a, a shoe cover on it, pulls off the shoe cover, and it's a Mary Jane. So he does the other one. So now he's got black Mary Janes, black stockings, pink coat, big shawl. He pulls the shawl up over his head, and there's a wig inside the shawl that just kind of tumbles down. It's all gray hair. Reaches in the pocket of the coat, pulls out a face mask that he worked on for a couple of weekends at home, put it on reaches back to his briefcase, hits a button, the thing pops open and turns into a grocery cart and it's full of groceries. And he ends up standing in front of the office director who did not go to sleep while he watched this thing. And the office director thought, this could work, or some version of this <laughs> could work. And actually some version of it did work in Moscow. It was, it was the beginning of one of, one of the best operations we ever ran in the city. And for 45 seconds, it goes from Tony Mendez, who is a mustachioed um, man. I mean, certainly there's nothing 
feminine about him in 45 steps in 45 seconds to an old Russian woman pushing a shopping cart. And that's pretty, you know, this is not in 2019, right? We're talking decades ago, this is what's happening. You know, the first time I ever met him, I was overseas working in some office. There was a sofa. Chief of Station's office was in there. And this man came in and sat down on the sofa. It was an African-American man who I'd never met. I didn't know who he was, but it wasn't my business to know who he was. He sat there for about five minutes, and then he left. And I asked someone else, I said, who was that? No one knew. It was Tony. He was just trying out, trying out a new disguise to see how it played. Well, I want to I I end this by asking you about one of my favorite stories of you that you're just now actually able to tell uh, because certain parts of it have been declassified, although we still can't get our hands on that damn mask, is your Oval Office visit. The mask is turning green. It's, it's, it's not meant to age. It would be much better in our care. <laughs> Can you tell that story and then sort of wrap us up? Yeah, the story, um, it, it, um, Tony spent some time out in, out in Hollywood. He was very interested in uh, the magicians. He was interested in uh, special effects and in the uh, makeup area. All three areas were interesting to him. And he even worked on some movie sets with John Chambers. Uh, Chambers would be sculpting uh, monsters. Tony would be sculpting faces, but they're using the same materials, these latex, silicone, all these rubbery kinds of materials to make masks. Well, what we needed from our mask was quite different from what Hollywood needed from theirs. They had all day long to put it on, and they had a couple hours to take it off. We needed something that went on instantly, within 10 seconds. It had to be perfect. You had to be able to do it in a parked car and take it off even faster. Hollywood never could do that. Still can't do that, Hollywood. So we, 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 we got it down pretty good. We needed it to animate. We needed it to talk. We needed it to move. That was the hard part. So we got to that, and then we made a prototype for me because I was chief of disguise then. And the first one, I was an African-American man, and I looked fabulous, but I couldn't talk it, couldn't walk it. I showed it to uh, the office director, showed it to the head of CIA. He said, let's take it to the White House. I said, I cannot wear this to the White House. So he said, we'll make something else. Make one that you can wear to the White House. So we did. Um, and because I got to talk about what I wanted to look like, she was younger, she was prettier, and she had way better hair than I did. I loved this mask. Um, so I showed it to Judge Webster, head of CIA, and he said, we're going to the White House tomorrow morning for the, for the morning briefing. I said, I have no ID. He said, don't worry about it. Just hold on to my coattails. Back then, you didn't need ID, I guess. Well, when you're with the CIA director, when it's Judge Webster. Yeah, he was my not. bona fides. Yeah. I'm with him. So I went to his house. I put it on. His little dog barked at me when I walked in. Little dog loved me when I walked out. The dog really liked the mask, so I thought that was a good <laughs> omen. I ended up stuck outside of the Oval Office for 15, 20 minutes, and they're taking, they're, they're laughing and telling jokes to all these men. And I'm kind of chewing on a pencil and studying my notes and trying to be, you know, unnoticeable. We went in. I was the first one to brief him. I showed him pictures of himself. This is George H.W. Bush. I said, this is when you were head of CIA. Remember these pictures? We made you those disguises. Well, now we're, we're much better. Now we've got the greatest disguise you've ever seen. And he said, well, where is it? And I said, I'm wearing it. Let me take it off and show it to you. And he said, no, 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 no. And he got up and he came and he walked around, all the way around, went back, sat down behind that desk. Now he's all sparkling and he says, okay, take it off. So I, I did what I now call the Tom Cruise reveal, but this was before <laughs> he should call his the John Mendez reveal. Exactly. So I put my finger under, under one corner of it and just peeled the thing off. And my hair is standing straight up and I'm holding it up in the air for him to see. And the White House photographer is taking pictures. So I went out to play with the dogs because Millie had had puppies and they were out in the secretary's office. And I'm down on the floor playing with these puppies. And Brent Scowcroft and, and John Sununu and Bob Gates and all the rest of them, they're continuing. So the photographer came out, came over to me and said, what did you do? And I said, you photographed it, right? She said, well, yeah, but I don't get it. 
I said, well, I can't tell you because it's classified. <laughs> and we kind of ended it there. I got, I got the photo 10 years later. And they had airbrushed. Right, the photo, the, the mask was completely obscured from the picture. It's a picture of me in the Oval Office with my hair sticking up and my hand in the air. <laughs> and it looks like I'm lecturing the President of the United States. It's a ridiculous picture. And it's hanging in my library. <laughs> but now finally they've allowed... Now, the, now we can talk about it. Yeah, there is a picture of, of you wearing that mask inside the book. So if people are interested... They can check it out, John. And we could talk for another two hours. You know we could. We know we could. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna cut it off here. Um, again, I want to appreciate uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I want people out there to know that Moscow rules. The secret CIA tactics that helped America win the Cold War is flying off the shelves. Um, I, I, it's wonderful when a book like this, which is not dumbed down at all, there's zero dumbed down in this, finds such Thank you. broad acclaim. I mean, there are people from every walk of life, picking this up and reading it, because it certainly gives insight into the difficulties that, that the CIA faced in operating inside Moscow during this time. It's certainly a testament to you and Tony uh, that you were able to put this together uh, that could be something for academics and for the lay people alike. So, John, thank you so much for talking to us here at SpyCast. We truly appreciate it. Kind words. Thank you so much. I loved it. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Mm-hmm.